Game Cool Books, episode 37, Do What We Like, Alright, it's on chapter 3, A Children's World, The Subtle Knife, by Philip Pullman. As if Lyra overheard Lee's talk among the witches about Stan Grumman, she has a horrible dream, though perhaps it will prove no less illuminating than Will's dream from which he awoke, knowing two important things. Clarity does not come at once for Lyra, but rather the images are presented in the manner of Pullman's account of where he begins with a story, simply as images, which he puts on little post-it notes and arranges to find the best order. In her dream she saw again the vacuum flask, the severed head, only this time she wasn't safely ensconced in the wardrobe but had to open the flask herself, and was not eager to see it, but terrified. The compulsion, as well as the fear, is mysterious. She had to, whereas before she wanted to. And it's this shifting negotiation between duty or destiny and will or conscious intent, which seems as important as the tantalizing contents of the dream which proved to be nothing at all. The head was gone. That is, as Lee guessed, Grumman wasn't dead. It was still attached to his body. But she awoke all the same, crying and sweating in the hot little bedroom facing the harbor, with the moonlight streaming through the window, and lay in someone else's bed clutching someone else's pillow, with the ermine pantalime and nuzzling her and making soothing noises. Oh, she was so frightened, and how odd it was that in real life she had been eager to see the head of Stanislaus Grimmin, and had begged Lord Asriel to open the flask again and let her look, and yet in her dream she was so terrified. Of course, there is something terrifying going on here, the fact that she's in this uh, empty house and its inhabitants have gone mysteriously, but uh, that doesn't seem to be too much on her mind at the moment. At any rate, she doesn't ask the alethiometer about that, but about her dream, and it tells her, helpfully, it was a dream about a head. <laughs> so italicized now. I, I think I expected it to be in the first book, but I don't remember that it was now. Uh, the alethiometer's voice, that is. And as it develops a personality, uh, the alethiometer becomes even more wonderful with this bit of dry humor, or in the first chapter at the end, there's that moment when she asks it about Will, and it tells her, of all things, he's a murderer. And I talked a little bit about that, but I've just come across an interview uh, from the year 2000 from a small, what is it called, a small literary convention, Unicon 2000, held in Oxford, England. I think it's by someone called Charles Brown, um, cited here and there in bibliographies and, and notes, and uh, using the Internet Wayback Machine on archive.org. I've been able to turn it up. So here is what Pullman says about this moment. Um, he says, He and Lyra meet in this sort of third space, a world which is new to both of them, so neither of them know their way around. 
Lara at first is afraid of Will because, coming from our world, he doesn't have a visible demon, and she doesn't know if he's alive or a ghost. She's frightened of him. So she asks the alethiometer, and the alethiometer gives the exact answer which Lyra would understand. He is a murderer, it says. The alethiometer, for those who haven't read it, is this truth-telling instrument which she learns to read by intuition. The alethiometer knows Lyra. It knows what she will appreciate and respond to. If it said, he's in trouble, he's had to run away because of this and that, she wouldn't be nearly so interested. She needs, at that point, to admire, trust, and rely on him, so it tells her that he's a murderer, which is glamorous, dangerous, exciting. So she does. And this is in the context of questions about Lyra's nature. It's, the whole interview is really worth a look. It's uh, something I'll post along with this recording, um, the link to it anyhow. Now, the comic relief of Lyra's ordinariness uh, goes on in her morning routine. She ogles the strange boy and makes herself an omelet, taking pride in the charred mess. <laughs> uh, while the sparrow pantalimon pecked at the bits of shell. I can make omelet, she said. I'll make you some if you like. He looked at her plate and said, no, I'll have some cereal. Uh, and then it's back to sleuthing, to figuring things out, because there's little notes. Does the milk is still good? The people that lived here can't have been gone very long. But lacking answers, they do turn back to the more immediate mystery of, of Lyra, uh, for Will and Will for Lyra. He asks her, where's your world? And she's quick in her answer to dismiss Asriel, she says she doesn't know what happened to him and doesn't care. Well, I don't know. She and Pan seem to care quite a bit about his threat to destroy dust at the end of the last book. Readers, anyhow, will remain powerfully curious at this mention of him, as it's one of the few in the book. He doesn't appear in this book at all. Lyra's description of her own journey between worlds is cryptic, but invites a symbolic interpretation. She was lost in a fog, eating berries, and wound up on the cliff past the lighthouse from where she saw the town. It maps on to Pullman's writing process again, in, in some way. The bright, shiny bits of story, or maybe like the berries, and the fog of doubt and uncertainty that the writer has to abide in while laboring and plodding along, losing track of time, until in those intermittent lighthouse flashes, things come together. The fragmentary glimpses of the city seen in the northern lights are realized at last. Like Will, she's sure this ain't her world. He remembers his own inexplicable certainty. What's unsure is what to do next. Reminding us there's millions of parallel universes, as Kaisa said, so that's what they're up against. Lyra's native pride does come through in her claim that no one before 
her father had made his bridge, was able to cross between these many worlds. But to that there's Will's caveat about that window he found. And she, she supposes that perhaps the worlds are moving into one another. It's such a collapsing of possibility that might indeed be what it would look like to stem the flow of dust, as Asriel falsely claimed that he was trying to do. For now, she gives Will a cold look when he asks about dust. This is to prod at the storyteller too much, perhaps, to demand something still being worked out. And still to this day, as of this recording, Pullman's working on the Book of Dust. Her plan is to find a scholar. She says, an experimental theologian, remarking how they were both speaking English, and it stands to the reason that there's other things the same back at the other one. Here she assumes that there's going to be an Oxford and a Jordan college uh, full of experimental theologians. They know all about elementary particles and fundamental forces, she explained. And, and barromagnetism, stuff like that. Adam Craft. What magnetism? And barromagnetism, like Anne Barrick. Those lights, she said, pointing up at the ornamental streetlight. They're Anne Barrick. We call them electric. Electric? That's like electrum. That's a kind of stone, a jewel made out of gum from trees. There's insects in it sometimes. You mean amber? he said. And they both said, Anbar. And each of them saw their own expression on the other's face. Will remembered that moment for a long time afterward. It's a moment where we step out of the present of the story for Will to remember something long after. It makes us maybe wonder if Will is in some sense responsible for telling the story then. Um, it reduces some of the suspense of wondering if he'll you know, survive a long time, um, let alone whether he and Lyra's friendship were, will endure. Uh, and this moment of uh, translation between the same language from two different worlds uh, is mapped onto a moment of recognition between two consciousnesses uh, in relationship with one another. Uh, they both become embarrassed, and they both are burning with questions, but neither of them gets a chance to ask. Again, the story, uh, part of its job is, while providing plenty of food for thought, to resist its own to self-conscious interpretation. Those questions will have to wait because they hear a voice. After three or four days of seeing no one in the town, it turns out there is someone now. Two children, around Lyra's age, a little younger, carrying baskets marked by the red hair. 
It's almost like some amalgam of Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood. But there's also something of those uh, Chirico paintings of the empty city. And Pan hides um, for these two, like Will, have no visible demon. Their question is the one that we've come to expect. Where are you from? Um, they ask from Chigazzi, from Centalia. Curious names, Italianate, the latter, in fact, the name of that imprisoned professor of cosmology who spoke to Lyra of collapsing probabilities. They reply, truthfully enough, that they're from somewhere else. And then that difference between children and grown-ups, so central to the story, returns in a new form as we hear about the specters. Chitagatsi, as we're told here, is a name that will take on more meaning later, as will the nature of these specters. And these two, Angelica and Paolo, refer clearly enough to the angelic and the Pauline, two of Pullman's great bugbears. They, too, have come from up the hills, so they're foils for Lyra particularly. With their telescopes, probably not foreshadowing Mary Malone's amber spyglass, but who knows, the grown-ups saw the city was full of specters. But of course, children are not afraid, and these two are proud to be the first back in town. There is a hint of someone else already there, their big brother Tulio, hiding. He's going to get, but Angelica shuts down Paolo, blabbing. We get just enough to feel the shape this story might take. That object Lee heard about Grimmin knowing about, which protects people. Could that be it? And there's another variation on the visibility-invisibility theme, and that specters go where the people are, but only hurt grown-ups. You can't see them until you're grown up, and it seems they can't see you, or at least don't care. But once you can, they can also get you. Paolo, with his grubby chin and shout of kill the buggers, uh, is not afraid. Along with Angelica's boast, we do what we like. They like it when the specters come, get to run about the city. These all help illustrate the difference between adult responsibility and knowledge and childish waywardness. She tells a bit in the manner of Lyra herself telling one of her gruesome tales, or of Tony Costa evoking the terrors of the North. She tells what happens when a specter catch a grown-up. Ooh, that's bad to see. They eat the life out of them there and then, all right? I don't want to be grown up for sure. At first they know it's happening, and they're afraid. They cry and cry. They try and look away and pretend it ain't happening, but it is. It's too late, and no one ain't gonna go near them. They on they own. Then they get pale and they stop moving. They're still alive, but it's like they've been eaten from inside. You look in their eyes, you see the back of their heads. Ain't nothing there. Me and Paolo's going to go look for ice creams, she said. You want to come and find some? No, said Will. We've got something else to do. 
after that terrifying image, we get one of the cuter moments in the entire story after the two of them go off looking for ice creams. Pantaliman appeared from Lyra's pocket, his mouse's head ruffled and bright-eyed. He said to Will, They don't know about this window you found. It was the first time Will had heard him speak, and he was almost more startled by that than by anything else he'd seen so far. It's a delightful moment, and Lyra's laughter at his astonishment and her quip about uh, Will thinking that Pan was just a pet is all very light-hearted. It does recall Mrs. Coulter's words in Bullfanger and Yorick's in the yard of Einerson's bar about demons being pets, or rather the important difference between them and pets. And we might even put it together with what the kids have just said about specters. Although what happens to people who are attacked by specters does seem even more drastic than the effects of intercision, maybe it's not so different in kind, only in degree. But Pantaliman's point is, we'd better be careful how we go through, which is quite unnecessary to say to Will, given his very careful and um, prudent personality. But in this moment, he's shaken out of that to an extent. Um, he talks to the mouse, and strange only for a moment, because it's like talking into a telephone. He wants to wonder about it. The mouse was separate. There was something of Lyra in his expression, but something else too. It was too hard to work out when there were so many strange things happening at once. Um, I think readers can sympathize with that. So, practical as ever, and maybe with an echo of Pullman's stint working in a clothes store, will points out that Lyra will need appropriate clothing to fit in, indeed to camouflage. He levels with her here about what this world means to him, that it's a good hiding place, the best he could dream of, that he has his own things to do, and that he'll show her through, but then she's on her own, and that if she gives him away in the world, then he'll kill her. Pan becomes a lemur, like the demon of that creepy dandy at the London coffee cart, who Lyra put off by telling him her father was a murderer. But Will stares Pan down, just what Annie couldn't do in the dorm room. They say that no one will notice them here, or rather Will does, uh, and that's, of course, part of what makes children different. It might be, strictly speaking, that children do notice, but that the quality of their attention is different. It's not sustained or savvy, and there will be no consequences if the kids notice them. Will stresses that Lyra should wash so that she shall belong so naturally that no one will even notice. She protests that she doesn't know how. 
as if she's forgotten what Mrs. Coulter tried to teach her and <laughs> tells her she'll just have to work it out. Um, it's Will's turn then to look coldly as Pan's ferocious rat face glared back at him. So he puts up a strong front, but within Will is divided. He has parts of him that are wanting different things, that are trembling, that are numb. And to unify, to bring these parts back together, he sets himself a task, simply busying himself with cleaning. As he's told Lyra, people in his world are clean, and clearly he values these sorts of conventions, not simply as a way to hide or cover things up, camouflage, but that they have powerful connections to attention, to consciousness seems to be the gist here. There's a whole self-help book that could be written on the subject, I bet. The storyteller, again, defers something that we've been curious about, having Will leave the writing case under the mattress, though he looks at it longingly. In a setting where surrealness is downplayed, the empty department store, shabby, old-fashioned, they find for Lyra a tartan skirt, a green sleeveless blouse with a pocket for Pan. About the jeans, she feels pretty strongly that the trousers, she's a girl, so don't be stupid. It's, of course, another joke for our benefit. And she makes another one shortly after, um, but she isn't sure yet whether she can tease Will. Still, she goes ahead and says it anyway, that if he pays for things, behaving like a grown-up, the specters will get him. So one more seed is planted for later, as they go about the city. It's ancient, near ruin, full of holes, broken windows, beauty and grandeur patched up indefinitely. But not lately, it seems. They come to a tower in a square in the oldest part of the city. We're told. Um, something about its stillness in the bright sun was intriguing. Both Will and Lyra felt drawn to the half-open door at the top of the broad steps, but they didn't speak of it, and they went on a bit reluctantly. So it's like the writing case, it's like dust, yet another thing, another mystery, and of course the one in plain sight, the connection between Lyra and Pantalaimon, we've been wondering about since the very first sentence of the book. So they come to the outskirts, to the cafe on the corner that Will has fixed for his landmark, and reckoning from there, with the difference that the daylight makes, it takes some time to find again. Perhaps it's a fair analogy for the creative intuition that we try to recapture by logically thinking things through. And not helpfully, but understandably, Lyra asks 
look like? What are they looking for? And Will wonders if it might have closed. But then he had it. And the way he sees it is by watching the edge and not seeing it at all from some angles. So I take that to mean that it's a matter of perspective and fine distinctions to see the remarkable in the midst of the ordinary. Like the battlemented tower, nothing so obviously interesting about it, but somehow it calls to you. There's another lovely analogy within the language of the story, where Lyra is as astounded by the window as Will was to hear Pan talk. And it's Pan who's the first one through this time, intrepid, where he started out by hanging back in the dining hall. As a wasp, he goes through, but Will makes Lyra stand aside so no one sees her. The traffic noise and her misgiving that this isn't like her Oxford. Will's rueful wrong time and his reminder to her to blend in, the directions he tells her, all this makes it not entirely shocking when we hear what happens next. A squeal, an accident, an argument. How's the kid? To his credit, Will goes through it once. Despite the danger of exposure, he was responsible. And dazedly, Pan climbs up a grass stem nearby. So it seems even he was careless this time. It's up to Will to cover for them all, calling her his sister, insisting that they're just around the corner. And while the drivers are looking curiously, as people always do, and the social machinery of insurance and witnesses, name and address are invoked, Will eludes them skillfully. On the spot, he decides they're Mark and Lisa Ransom. They live on Born Close. I can only make from that that this is the name of the shortest gospel, and an L name that he gets off the top of his head. The word born uh, reminds me of that obsession with Genesis and close. One of those interesting English words with two radically different meanings, either near, nearby, or in terms of the noun, a street closed at one end, a blind alley. Like worrying too much about trying to interpret these names, probably. To wrap up this short chapter, I was shaken up, but not too badly hurt. But the physical jolt will soon be accompanied by a psychic one. At least the alethiometer is okay. And that rucksack that we'll notice she always keeps by her. And he's as blown away by the instrument when she shows it, as Lyra is by the technology of his world. That she'd never seen so many or guessed that they were going so fast. He tells her, Cohen, to be careful, more angry than he needed to be. Which begs the question, where the emotion is really coming from? 
probably from all sorts of things, of course. But, and he recovers. He rationalizes that this disguise uh, as his sister will actually help him too, and realizes or accepts that he better stick with her a little while. For one thing, she needs money, of course, to which she replies that she's got some and shows him more gold, coins, which here um, has, uh, you know, maybe a less significant appearance uh, than all those others that we've seen. For example, laying the coins on the eyes of Billy Macario, sorry, Tony Macario. And he tells her just to put them away, that she's just not safe. Um, she modifies her alias to the familiar Lizzie, and though having her around will throw them off the scent, the people that are looking for him, uh, in another way, her bruises are going to make them um, more conspicuous, and Will's worried that the police, if they notice them, will become curious. But apparently there isn't too much to be done about that. Um, he's thrown his lot in with her at this point, and the traffic is flowing again. They can't very well go back through. So they take the bus, so that Lyra won't have to walk as much, I guess. And Will's in charge again, with Lyra looking around uneasily as they pass through Summertown, Banbury Road. In the scene which makes me think of Earthbound, Will uses his parents' ATM card. And this means, I guess, that they will certainly be able to track him, but at the end of the working day, at the earliest. Somebody surely is monitoring the account. They'll know that he's in Oxford, or was. And now they've got 100 pounds. Considerable amount of money. Maybe not as much as gold coins. So on the bus, she sat very quietly, watching the houses and gardens of the city that was hers and not hers. It was like being in someone else's dream. They got off in the city center next to an old stone church, which she did know, opposite a big department store, which she didn't. It's all changed, she said. Like, that ain't the corn market. And this is the broad. There's Balliol and Bodley's library down there. But where's Jordan? That ain't right, she said. She spoke quietly because Will had told her to stop pointing out so loudly the things that were wrong. This is a different Oxford. Well, we knew that, he said. He wasn't prepared for Lyra's wide-eyed helplessness. He couldn't know how much of her childhood had been spent running about streets almost identical with these, and how proud she'd been of belonging to Jordan College, whose scholars were the cleverest, whose coffers the richest, whose beauty the most splendid of all. And now it simply wasn't there, and she wasn't Lyra of Jordan anymore. She was a lost little girl in a strange world, Belonging nowhere. Well, she said shakily, if it ain't here, it was going to take longer than she thought. That was all. Again, the narrator seems to share or occupy the same space as the character's thoughts here. 
coming in with a slightly more determined uh, stance on the problem, which is shaking up Lyra even worse than the accident. Um, the reader is probably as unprepared for Lyra's helplessness as Will is, if not more so. This is about the uh, shakiest we've seen her. Um, but, of course, we should know better. We should know just how much Jordan meant to her. And uh, as readers who've gone through the full series and seen Pullman's indebtedness to William Blake in particular, we should probably also hear that echo there to the poem Little Girl Lost, um, whose character turns out has a name very similar to Lyra. She's called Lyca in those poems. Um, it's actually a couple of poems that go together, Little Girl Lost and then Little Girl Found in Blake's Songs of Experience. So I'll just read a little bit from those. In futurity, I prophetic see that the earth from sleep, grave the sentence deep, shall arise and seek for her maker meek, and the desert wild become a garden mild. In a southern clime, where the summer's prime never fades away, lovely like a lay, seven summers old, lovely like a told, she had wandered long, hearing wild bird song. Sleep, sweet sleep, come to me underneath this tree. Do father, mother weep? Where can Lyca sleep? Lost in desert wild is your little child. How can Lyca sleep if her mother weep? If her heart does ache, then let Lyca wake. If my mother sleep, Lyca shall not weep. Frowning, frowning night, o'er this desert bright, let thy moon arise while I close my eyes. Sleeping like a lay, while the beasts of prey come from caverns deep, viewed the maid asleep. The kingly lion stood, and the virgin viewed, then he gambled round o'er the hallowed ground. Leopard, tigers, play round her as she lay, while the lion old bowed his mane of gold, and her bosom lick upon her neck and from his eyes aflame booby tears there came, while the lioness loosed her slender dress, and naked they conveyed to caves the sleeping maid. The little girl found. All the night in woe, like as parents go, over valleys deep while the deserts weep, tired and woe-begone, hoarse with making moan, Arm in arm, seven days they trace the desert ways. Seven nights they sleep among shadows deep, and dream they see their child starved in desert wild. Pale through pathless ways, the fancied image strays. Famished, weeping, weak, with hollow, piteous shriek, rising from unrest, the trembling women pressed with feet of weary woe. She could no further go. In his arms he bore, her armed with sorrow sore, till before their way a couching lion lay. 
Turning back was vain. Soon his heavy mane bore them to the ground. Then he stalked around, smelling to his prey. But their fears allay when he licks their hands, and silent by them stands. They look upon his eyes, filled with deep surprise, and wondering behold, a spirit armed in gold. On his head a crown, on his shoulders down flowed his golden hair, gone was all their care. Follow me, he said, weep not for the maid, in my palace deep, like a lies asleep. Then they followed where the vision led, and saw their sleeping child among tigers wild. To this day they dwell in a lonely dell, nor fear the wolvish howl, nor the lion's growl. So that note of determination that the chapter ends on, and that hint of mystery about worlds dreaming, um, or rather uh, being in someone else's dream, the world's dreaming thing comes a little later, um, all has something to do with the kind of mystical tone of the Blake poems, uh, along with the more concrete connections between spirits and animal forms, um, and of course the language of being a little girl lost, which seems directly referenced there. Um, but there's also something in that narrational, or that narrative uh, technique of taking up the character's thoughts, um, which suggests a kind of providence uh, as well as determination, uh, which is going to see them through this story. Um, that as helpless as Lyra seems, or as scattered as Will's thoughts are, they are in the hands of a capable narrator who has their best interests in mind, uh, will not betray them and let down his readers. Uh, seems to be part of his goal to point people back to his sources, but part also to make them feel thoroughly enraptured in the story. Uh, we'll see if he is able to maintain that through the whole long tale. So thanks again for listening.